Does this look about right? Testing. How is it in the back? Good? That means good or turn it out. <laughs> Great, thank you. So we'll just wait for a minute to have the clock strike seven before we start. Good evening. <clears throat> Hi. <laughs> My name is Gina Sharp, for those of you whom I've not met. And this is New York Insight. If you've, hopefully that's where you intended to be. <laughs> We have, um, on these Tuesday nights, we have an opportunity for people who uh, feel they need some, or, or may, maybe not even need, but like to have instructions in meditation. Um, and Lanny Miller, who's one of our lovely teachers, is teaching, uh, giving instructions in the smaller room so please feel free if you would prefer to sit with instructions rather than silently to go there. We begin all of our events at New York Insight by having you greet each other. And we do that because uh, we found that because the nature of our practice is silent, that in so many ways people would come to New York Insight and feel as if there was no support of community um, because we'd all be in our little kind of pods and meditate and get up and leave. And um, So we value very much the third refuge of uh, our teachings, which is the refuge of Sangha or refuge of community. And uh, so encourage you to, um, to acknowledge that there are other people here and to understand that when we practice together that we are offering support to everybody else here in the room and everyone else is offering us their support. So it's a real beautiful interconnected kind of uh, mutuality that we enter into. So may I ask you to turn to people who are around you and greet them and say hello and um, if you're new here 
Just a second, just a second. Wait, 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 you're not doing it wrong. Um, I just wanted to ask if you're new to New York Insight, anybody new to New York Insight? If you would come and say hello to me too. In include me in your, in your greetings. Now, go ahead. Have a good time. Like that.
the spitter. So we're going to do another test. Is that is that better? Is that better for the people in the back? Is, it, is that better sound? Great, great. Okay. So what I didn't finish saying, which I should have, was that um, if you want to go into the other room, we after the sitting itself, you come back in here, and um, on these nights I do some inquiry into your questions, and we write a Dharma talk together by the questions you ask, so that's what will happen for the second hour. Okay, so any questions or anything you'd like to know before we sit together? Great. So even though we're going to be silent, I'd like to make a couple of suggestions. One is to renew your intention for sitting, for being here, reminding yourself, remembering mindfulness, the Pali word for mindfulness, sati, often is translated as remembering. So to remember our practice together, why we do it, what our intention is, our aspiration. and to remember the connection that we have in this world together, that we're not separate, but completely joined as human beings. So that the breath that we take in is the breath that has been breathed by so many before us. And as we take an out-breath, that that breath goes out to join all of the other bodies in this room, this building, this city, this state, this country, this world. And to remember that, that we're not alone, that we're not separate, that we're not apart. And that as our breaths join, so do our hearts.
And as we close our meditation together tonight, I invite you, if you think it might be of help and support, to consider what is sacred in your life. Perhaps it's a relationship or a person or a child or a parent or a family member or a friend. And remember to feel some gratitude for that in your life. Feel the blessing of it. And then consider what is difficult in your life. What may not feel sacred? And feel some gratitude for that too. Whatever lessons or wisdom that difficulty or those difficulties bring And then widen your circle to include all of those who are on this planet with us. Who may feel lonely or excluded. Or are grieving a loss. And allow that loneliness, grief, sorrow to come into your own heart. And to feel compassion both for your own sorrow and the sorrow and grief of all of those other beings on this planet with whom we share our humanity. and allow your heart to open to wish well-wishing for all of the beings with whom we share this planet. Their happiness, their sadness, their joy, their sorrow their gains, their losses, their pleasures and pains, 
wishing for the well-being, the safety, the happiness, the health, and the peace and ease of all beings everywhere. Include all the beings with whom you feel some kinship. And those with whom you feel no kinship. Let your heart grow as large and as wide as the world. and feel the warmth of that. So tonight, on these Tuesday nights, um, I enjoy inquiring with you about any Dharma questions that you have. Um, and I just want to say a couple of things before I invite questions. We're living in a very difficult time. And as, uh, as we were driving here tonight, I turned the radio on just to hear what was happening in the world, and it wasn't a pretty picture. We're living in a time where much of our culture is uh, in question, where we as Dharma students wonder how can we give this amazing wisdom and these deep values that we learn from practice and from study into a world that is so filled with turmoil and seeming hatred. And I'm I really hope that we understand deeply our interconnected nature, that we live together on this small rock hurtling through space at an unbelievable speed, which we don't even notice, right? And it's a really small planet. And we can't do without each other. And what that means is, because we are dependent on each other, that we must care for each other, that we must care deeply for each other. And that caring means that if one person is harmed, is hurt, 
that we are all hurt, that we are like one organism where if any part of that organism is hurt, an arm reaches out to touch it, to heal it. And we must consider ourselves part of this one body. To care, to love, to feel compassion for, and to do so with understanding and with deep wisdom, to not accept anything that we're told without questioning, without really examining our hearts, to see what it's like for somebody else who may not look like us, who may not be in the same economic class as we are, who may not be in the same culture, may not come from the same culture, but we have that deep connection of being human together on this small rock. And to really question how we can support life together. And it's, it's not a kind of Pollyanna-ish wish that everybody just be happy together, but really a deep a wise wish that comes from the deepest of our values, where we understand completely that violence never prevails, that violence never brings happiness, but that what is, what is really valuable is how much we love each other and how much we see each other, see ourselves in each other, and how that can become the true value of our culture, of our world, not the hatred and the greed and the delusion that we, that we know makes us suffer. We know from studying our own mind, hearts, and bodies that when we are acting from greed, when we're acti- acting from hatred, and when we're acting from delusion, that we, we are not happy. It doesn't bring happiness. That when we act from wisdom, from kindness, from a real wish to be of help and of goodwill, when we are acting from generosity, that we cannot help but be happy. So it's a way of protecting ourselves, but it's also a way of protecting the whole body of humanity, that we cleanse and purify our own hearts and our own ways of being in the world. And in so doing, we inspire all of those around us to at least look into it. It's a difficult world that we live in, but it's also a beautiful world. And how can we bring those two aspects together?
so that we're not turning away from the difficulties or what may seem ugly. And yet we're not deluding ourselves into thinking that it's easy or that uh, the rifts in our culture and in our society can be easily healed. But we understand the work that needs to be done. And it needs to be done in every single individual heart for us to live together in some peace and harmony. So that's all I'd like to say. And of course, I'm really happy to hear whatever questions you have. And I don't, may not have any answers, but we, maybe we can come to some understandings together. I uh, <coughs> pardon me, meditate fairly regularly in mindfulness on the breath, trying to be in the moment. I do that fairly regularly. The hardest thing for me to understand is how does that practice lead me, induce me to feel compassion for other people? This practice that I did tonight, I do it and I'm I'm grateful to be able to do it, but I don't get the connection in my mind or in my heart how it leads to the, the development of compassion for the world. What do you think is the problem? I, the problem is I, my... <laughs> Deficiency in, in understanding. I, I don't. I, I need someone to guide me to get clue me in how to get the connection. I want to be clued in. So you want to be you want to be clued in. Yeah. <laughs> how is that going to happen? Something's got to help. I mean, I want <laughs> something, something to help. or somebody. Pardon me. Something or somebody has to help. Well, how about you? Sorry. How about you? How about me? I love it so many times when I sit with the Dalai Lama and people ask him questions. I love it when he says, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because we expect him to like have all the answers. And he just says, I don't know. So do you think it's that through being clued in that you will have compassion? Or do you think it's a real understanding of this mind, this heart, and this body. And when I say understanding, I don't mean having read about it or believing in what the suttas tell us about it, but actually knowing for ourselves what it's like to inhabit this body, this heart, this mind. I, I want to do that. You want I, to do I that. want to feel it in my heart and body and mind. You want to feel it in your I heart. I want to, yeah, I want to understand and feel it, but I don't. Maybe there, is, maybe there is no connection between my daily practice of mindfulness meditation and, and the development of a greater feeling of com the, the, qual the, the quality of compassion. Maybe there is no so connection. Do you, so what is compassion?
an, an, an empathy for the suffering of all other sentient beings. Do you have compassion for yourself? Maybe not too much. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> Why not? Well, sometimes I feel I have more compassion for the suffering of others than I have for my own, um, my, my own suffering. I can feel much, I can feel great. And how does that happen? don't know. Ah. <laughs> so what does it feel like to have, do you feel compassionate right now? What are you feeling right now? Uh, kind of neutral state, I don't when I see someone suffering, or I hear of someone suffering, I look at someone suffering, I meet someone suffering, I feel enormous compassion, and I always act in any way I can. Have you always them. felt that? I believe so, yeah. Even as a little so, boy. So, then what's the problem? I'm just asking about, about the practice I do every day. If, there's, if this will, it's, it's a practice that will help me to feel to develop my sense of compassion, even when I... Have you tried? Have I tried what? To develop your sense of compassion. Oh, whenever, I, I feel it whenever I see or hear of suffering. I, I mean... I, I what does that feel like? What does compassion feel like? Well, it's, an, it's a surging kind of emotion. It's a, uh, a warmth mm -hmm. and a a yearning, mm -hmm. and a, maybe an aching feeling, mm -hmm. which has nothing to do with my daily sitting. How do you know that? Well, I just don't, I'm not aware of any connection, that's all. That's why I'm asking you. But how do you know that? I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not aware of it. You're not aware of it? No, that's all I'm saying. So, does... Do you need to understand it intellectually, or do you need to have a, way, a, a pathway that is explicit and um, analytic in order for you to feel that there is some uh, surging of, or that fluttering of the heart that we say is compassion, or the surging that you described in hearing of someone's suffering, that there is some surging in your heart that of warmth and of beauty or of uh, some empathy, as you called it. What is the need for um, an analytic or explicit pathway that you must see? What is the need for that? Well, maybe there's no need, but I would like, if, if there is a connection, <laughs> I would like to know what, if it exists. That's all. I'm just asking if there... But you can only know it exists in your own heart, in your own mind. Well, it doesn't exist. Ah, okay. And I, I, would, like, I would like it... You would like it to exist? To, yeah, sure. So have you done any practices of compassion? 
or is or are you just relying on it? And my on practice your own of heart? compassion is being compassionate to people when I see suffering. That's my practice. You you have a practice of being compassionate. Yes, it's a daily practice of seeing of whenever I encounter suffering, people on the street or people I hear about, people in the news. I do whatever I can to. I, I'm always moved to try to do something. That's my practice. But it has, seems to have nothing to do with my, my sitting and being aware of my breath. That's all. Oh, so you're worried about the, the, <laughs> the connection between mindfulness and compassion. I'm wondering if it exists. You're wondering if it exists. Yeah, in my, yeah if there's some way I can be, become aware of its uh, connection. That's all. Mm -hmm. So how would you know you're compassionate other than being present for it? Well, when, when the feeling of compassion arises in me, I'm aware of it. But I'm not aware of it when I'm sitting and being conscious of my breath. Well, why would it arise if there's no suffering in present? It Doesn't compa isn't um, a, a predicate, a necessary predicate of compassion is suffering, yes? Yours or someone else's? An awareness of it, yeah. First, the suffering itself, yes, yes. and then the awareness of the yeah. suffering, and then the arising of the compassion. Yeah. So, what's the problem? <laughs> you want somebody to tell you that if you sit and watch your breath, compassion will arise. I want to know if that practice is conducive to the, to the broadening of that feeling. And the, if I tell you that, that, that I see that in my own practice, would that suffice? Then I would wish that I had your wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you, but I wish... So then you don't, so then you don't actually believe that, that our, we have an experience in common. You think that somehow your experience is different than mine? Well, it seems to be different, yeah. What makes it seem to be different? Because, because you said you have a feeling of that connection, and I don't have that feeling. Mm -hmm. And I wish that I had your insight. Well, but, but w yeah, that's a, that's a wholesome wish, obviously. A, a wish for one's own insight to arise. How does insight arise? I don't know. Ah. By being, so have by, you had any insights in your own practice? Well, being open to new ideas and be, allowing yourself to be vulnerable and open to new feelings. So, okay, so when you practice, what do you see? I see a void. You see the void. A void. A void. M emptiness. Yeah. You see emptiness. And yeah. what's that like? What's it like? There, there, there is no emotion or feeling in it. It's a contemplation of emptiness. Of? 
It's a contemplation of emptiness. There's no feeling. A contemplation of emptiness. There's no feeling. No. Whatsoever. Nothing. No. No. Nothing. I don't think so, no. Mm -hmm. And um, is is there any suffering in that emptiness? Maybe pity for myself. Pity for yourself? Yeah. Pity for yourself? Yeah. Self-pity? Feeling for my own suffering, maybe. So do you equate pity and compassion? I guess so, yeah. Ah, they're different. Oh. Do you know the difference between pity and compassion? I don't think so. Okay, so pity, maybe I can help you here, rather than asking you a question. (laughs) So pity is when we see someone else suffering, or even ourselves suffering, and somehow there's a distance between me and your your suffering, or me and my suffering. When that's pity... There's, some, there's a kind of inequality between the, 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 the suffering itself and the observation or the awareness of the suffering. In compassion, there is no distance. In compassion, what we understand very deeply is that your suffering and my suffering are no different that in some ways we are tied together inexorably and inevitably by the nature of what it means to be human. That there is joy, there is sorrow, there is pain, there is uh, pleasure, there is loss, there is gain, there is praise, there is blame, there is fame, there is disrepute. That we're always uh, moving between these pairs. And maybe when you and I meet together one day, I'm having gain and you're having loss. Or vice versa, you're having pleasure and I'm having pain. But we understand very deeply that these are experiences that we have in common. And because I happen to meet you in a moment when you are in the suffering half of the uh, equation, we're no different. And so my compassion is a recognition of, oh, this is the suffering of being human. Now, this suffering of being human, if you've not seen it in your practice, I'm surprised. How long have you been practicing? Uh, a few years. Not, not, not regularly, but... Have you seen it? Have you seen your own suffering? Yes. So if you've seen your own suffering, how can you not have compassion? How can your practice, in which you've seen suffering, not produce compassion? 
You don't have to answer. That's a koan. So have you seen your own suffering is the first question. And when, if, we've, if we've really meditated, if we've really practiced, if we've allowed all of the chatter and the, and the proliferation of the mind to get somewhat quiet, it may never get completely quiet for some of us, but even if it gets a little bit quiet, one of the things we encounter very quickly is all of the ways in which we've suffered and all of the ways in which we may even be suffering right now. It, and, you know, the word suffering can sometimes feel as if it's really harsh. But the way the Buddha talked about suffering in the teachings is anything from a hangnail to the loss of somebody that we absolutely love and adore. Or our own loss, our own sickness, our own aging, our own death. And in practice, we actually see that. We know it. We know it. It's not, a, it's not an intellectual exercise of, oh, there is suffering. It's a real insight into all of the ways in which suffering comes because we're in this human body and all of the ways in which we have in our own ways brought suffering into our lives. It's not that we're to blame or that we're to pity ourselves or poor me, why am I suffering? But it's really a recognition of, oh, this is what it's like to be human. All we have to do is try to sit in this position for 45 minutes, and we know suffering, right? The back hurts, the shoulder hurts, the knees hurt. Uh, uh, What was I thinking, right? And we begin to to understand suffering in a really visceral way, not in a way of, oh, the Buddha said we suffer, so it must be true. Anybody not know suffering? Put up your hand, let me see you. We all know it. So once we know it, but, but know it, not think it's true or analyze our way into it, but actually know it. The backache, the pain in the knee, the illness of somebody that we really love, the loss of somebody we really love, the loss of our own youth, the loss of our health, the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a child, the loss of a parent. How many ways can we count of how we suffer as human beings? But, you know, if we're not practicing, we're doing something else to see if we can kind of paper it over, right? We're drinking, we're having a lot of sex, we're going to parties, or we're working like crazy so that we don't have to feel it. And our practice actually strips all of that away because we're just somebody sitting here on a chair or on a cushion and just feeling it, just seeing it. 
And if we see that over and over and over and over again, which is what, which is why practice can be so tedious, is because we're just looking at it over and over and over and over again. We begin to see the connections. We begin to see the connections between suffering and the cause of suffering, and those moments when we are liberated from suffering. And we begin to understand how that happens. So just a moment of sitting, the Four Noble Truths can present themselves to us without any problem, if we're really paying attention. And if we see those Four Noble Truths, we can't help but have compassion arise. It's not possible. So I have a feeling it's also one of those questions where there may not be an answer, but I'm aware that I and many others here are about to enter into this whole Thanksgiving family thing. <laughs> and um, and I, I know that for me the hardest moments are if we're trying to practice and we're trying to be aware that when you meet up with all the forces of unawareness that get in that room, uh, <laughs> it gets... Right. That room, I know that room. <laughs> I know that room you know that so room. well. You have no idea how well yeah. I know that room. So, I mean, the question is really, you know, and whether you're going to want to do this or not, but what do you do in those <laughs> moments where it's just all too much and the lack of awareness is really... Hmm. So it's another question about compassion. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but more specifically, I mean, as you were talking, I, I, I guess I got in touch with this the idea that, okay, stay in the body would probably be a good idea, um, and to breathe would probably also be a good idea, but it's at the moment where just how can this particular person be so clueless? So how attached are you to them being not clueless? (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I could work on that. (laughs) She's really clueless about cooking. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. So, in other words, you're saying to part with that, try to part with that idea of seeing her that way. Well, good luck with that, right? Because, yeah. because we're so um, habituated mm-hmm. to seeing, you know, Aunt Jane one way, you know, she's the clueless one, mm-hmm. and Uncle Tom is the one who's, you know, doesn't know how to cook, and She's the one who always gets drunk, and he's the one who always says the wrong thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, so we have our, you know, we've been meeting with these people now for thanks, Thanksgivings into eternity. It feels like that anyway, right? Yes. Yes. And so we already, you know, so I can already feel you stealing yourself, yeah. right, to walk into that, mm-hmm. that room. Mm-hmm. 
And what would it be like to imagine that you're meeting all of these people for the very first time? Because you are. Because nobody, nobody is the same from moment to moment to moment. Mm -hmm. We have patterns, yes. But at the same time, what would it be like to allow yourself to be surprised by the changes that people have come through? Mm -hmm. What would it be like to be not attached to them seeing things the way you see them? What would it be like to feel some compassion for somebody who's really clueless, in your opinion? To be, what would it be like to, be, to live in a way that is completely self-centered or completely unaware or fill in the blank? Because we all have these relatives, right? We, I think it's just one relative that we all have. Right? That same relative. We all have that same relative. Right? So what would it be? And, you know, and your buttons are going to get pushed. Don't you think? (laughs) Your buttons get pushed, Lanny? Right? Our buttons are going to get pushed. So can we, A, be aware of our button being pushed? Right? So immediately the button gets pushed. Can there be a break between the button getting pushed and your usual reaction. There's a moment there Mm -hmm. when there's a choice. It's it's a sliver of a moment, and if you blink, you'll miss it, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's so easy to kind of just go right into that. Mm -hmm. But is it possible to make a different choice? Just ask yourself that question. I'm not, you don't need to give me an answer. Is it possible to make a different choice? You know, I'm... I always love the saying from Ajahn Chah, who's my teacher's teacher, you know, who said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. Right? So that sounds really good. (laughs) But the trick is, how do we do that? Right? And the first thing is to really, 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 really use your practice, really use your practice, to know when your buttons are getting pushed. Because that's the moment. It's not when you're way down the reaction that something's going to change. It's going to change right at that intersection of the button getting pushed and the awareness of it. That's where it gets changed. Oh, my button's getting pushed. I want to scream. I want to run screaming out of this room right now. And I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sit here and feel what it's like for my button to get pushed. And feel all of the, as you said, how does my body feel like? What are the thoughts in my mind? What are the hateful thoughts in my mind? Can I actually see those hateful thoughts without judging myself for having them? Can I actually hear that hateful sentence that pushed my button without judging the person and saying, that's who that person is. That one sentence is who that person is. Can we just let that sentence arise, have a moment, and pass away? 
Is that possible? Ask the question, is it possible? Not, I'm going to do it. I'm going to like steal myself and make myself not hear it. But is it possible for me to allow it to kind of waft through the room and my not grabbing onto it and pulling it down and stomping on it? What's possible? What's possible in this moment? And sometimes you'll be successful and sometimes you won't even notice your button got pushed and it will get pushed and you'll do the thing, whatever the thing is that you do. But sometimes the whole, the whole thing of practice is, is not that we're making ourselves be something different, but we're looking at the possibility of transformation. We're just considering it. And each time we consider it, it becomes a little bit more possible each time. And we're all, we're going to be attached, we're going to get attached, and we're going to like think of people as this way or that way. Hear yourself say it. She's this way. She's unaware. And say, is that really true? Is she always unaware? It's a practice. It's, this, it's, it's basically the same question. It's a practice. We just keep doing it. We keep doing it. You know, when we're, when we're lifting weights to, to build muscle, we don't sit there and say, how does this lifting weights build a muscle? We just watch the muscle getting built, and then we know it. Then we know it. I mean, and you know, and maybe somebody can, you know, you can go into an anatomy book and figure it out and see what the muscles do and how, which ones, and you, you can do all of that. But actually, that kind of knowledge is much more superficial. The knowledge where you actually see, oh, when I do this, that happens. That's deep. Because it, it allows you to know what to choose. You know, the Buddha at one point talked about having two kinds of thought. He said, and, he, and, and this, he, this, he was do, this he talked about after his enlightenment, right? I love this. He had, after he was enlightened, he still had two kinds of thought. The first kind of thought was skillful and wholesome and led to his happiness and to the happiness of others. And there's a second kind of thought, unskillful, unwholesome, led to his unhappiness and the unhappiness of others. And he recognized, oh, I can make a choice. If I see a wholesome thought coming up, I can actually um, see how I can amplify that. And if I see an unwholesome thought arising, I can see if I can let it go. Pretty simple stuff. This is not, you know, esoteric. But the trick is that you do it over and over and over and over and over again. And that's why every time we look at the breath and it runs away and we come back, we're training the mind to that kind of repetition that builds that muscle. Right? Just like when we pick up a barbell, you know, we don't do it once and say, okay, where's that muscle? Right? No, we, we go back to the gym over and over and over and over and over. And then one day we look in the mirror and we go, wow, this is a different body yeah. altogether. Yes? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So, so, you know, use this first Thanksgiving. Make it your first Thanksgiving with everybody, okay. right? Yeah. And and see, oh, I'm having a day of practice with my family, and they don't have to know what you're doing, right? But you're just watching those thoughts coming and going, coming and going, coming and going, and they, wow. She's so quiet today. <laughs> Thank you. Right? Yes. Thank you. I really liked you today. You did a re- you were really nice, right? Um, so I hope that this is an answerable question because I really need the answer to this question. <laughs> Seriously, this is not a joke. Um, okay, so um, I'm like totally aware of my hindrances and I always like figured that um, aversion was my main hindrance, which I mean it is. But um, I was listening to a talk um, uh, by Joseph Goldstein and he was talking about, um, oh shoot, well, Okay, two things, but the one I really remember right now was like um, doubt and um, how doubt like affects our practice and stuff like that and how it can um, affect our lives and kind of ruin them. And um, God, I realized, oh my God, I'm like so full of doubt, like in every kind of single solitary way. And like I can freak out about should I take the one train or should I take the A? Well, if I take the one, it's going to stop at all the stops. But if I take the A, I'm going to have to walk. And then that's going to mean that that time that I took walking is going to equal the stops that I would have taken on. It's like that every single day. Mm-hmm. I mean, yesterday I was like, should I? Oh, it's today. It doesn't matter. I was like, should I get wine? And that took forever to decide. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, which wine store? And then I'm leaving the wine store and I'm like, well, should I have the Cabernet or the Rioja? So that was really, it's just like that. And, um, and I've been also thinking about right effort. And because I don't think I have right effort at all. And I'm realizing that this doubt is kind of kicking the ass of right effort. It's like not allowing it to happen. And mm. now that I realize that I kind of live in doubt every second of the day just about, I don't know how to... Okay, so see, I don't know. This is another thing. I don't know how to do this, so I hope you have an answer. Um, I don't know how to extinguish it, and I feel as though I can't progress or move forward or do anything with my life or my practice because doubt is, like, plaguing me. I can't take any effort, right, wrong, or indifferent. Okay, got it. Do you want to answer this? Huh? Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks. So, you said that you are um, in a state of doubt every minute of every day. Okay, that was an exaggeration. I realize that. (laughs) But it's a lot. It's a lot. I'm not, it's seriously, it's a lot. I can think, well, should I sit right now? No, I'm not going to sit because I'm going to go to, you know, I, you know, NYI. I'm going to go to NYI, so why should I sit now? And then I'm, it's just like, it's a lot. So, I mean, I'm not OCD. I don't think I need medication or anything. I'm just saying. I'm just noticing that you are telling yourself that, that you're, 
your um, your experiences. Obviously, it's affecting you. Um, this experience of experiencing a lot of doubt, and you're telling yourself that you're you're experiencing it a lot. And I'm just wondering, how do you think you could relate to that yourself without either one of us answering that? How do you think you might take a look at that and 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 be kind to yourself with that? Can I just make one? Yes, sure, please. That you have doubt, right. Oh, that I have doubt? Okay, see, and I never knew that until, like, I listened to this talk, so I guess I should be happy about that. But, I mean, I guess so. But now I don't know how to, like, eradicate it. Now I see how it's been, like, really a bad thing. Okay, it's very unskillful. Right. So, yes, Gina's, you know, I noticed that, too, that you used that word eradication. I, 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 and that feels to me like you really like want to get that doubt you know <laughs> you want to get it and if I were that doubt I might feel a little like you know have sort of a feeling about that I'm just wondering if there's and I'm going to ask you again because this is the question that, that I hear, you know, and that is how could you be kind to yourself with this? How could you, or would you want to be? Would well, you want to be kind to yourself in relation to this doubt? I'm not sure because I'm really kind of pissed off at myself over it. And um, now So there's judgment. There's judgment. I mean, like, okay, so you look at the Buddha under the Bodhi tree and he, like, met Mara, blah, 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 and he, like, got rid of doubt and then... And then he was able to, like, be enlightened and all of that stuff. Uh, well, like, I can't even get there. Gina's gonna, oh. Gina has some thoughts on this. I'm just this. gonna give you an answer. Okay. Right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You've shamed me into it, Regina. <laughs> so every time doubt comes up, just label it as doubt. So whether it's about the wine store or the subway or whether to come to New York Insight, it doesn't matter, right? The content of it doesn't matter. What matters most is that this is doubt happening. And you just, you work with that. But again, you know, none of these practices are, go, are going to eradicate anything. If we try to eradicate something, that's violence. That's violence against ourselves, it's violence against a whole host of um, injuries that you may have had throughout your life. There, it, it's, it's violence. So as Lani was saying, can you just be kind to this doubt? But in order to be kind to the doubt, you need to just recognize it as such. And I'm sure Joseph said that, because I've heard his talks on doubt. So that so your first your first step and take it as a ba- this is my first step this is the only step i need to do with doubt just recognize it that's all and then when you recognize it after you've recognized it over and over and over and over and over and over and over oh my god i can't believe how much doubt i have i have so much doubt i could die from doubt okay you didn't die from doubt right no, so but I you, messed up my life, you know what I mean? Well, you know, and there's nothing you can do about that. That's true. Now, right, but you can move forward. 
So can you accept it? So you recognize it, you accept it, understand what it's like in your body, your heart, and your mind. And the most important step, don't identify with it. It's not your doubt, it's just doubt. It's just doubt. No big deal. Doubt is not that big a deal. So we don't give it the power that you're giving it. It's also not permanent. It's been a few decades, but here's the thing. <laughs> and I don't want to let... I what's a few decades? It's a lot. What's a few I'm, decades in eternity? I don't have eternity. <laughs> you do. The thing is, is... Um, <laughs> I don't want eternity, but um, it's, I know about the violence and all of that, but then what about the violence that doubt is doing to my right effort to engage in the practice? See what I'm saying? Well, that's, that's how you're looking at it. If you're, if you're giving it a person, why don't you call it, you know, like, do you have a favorite name for like a dog that you used to have or a kitten that you used to have that you loved or something? What's the name? Okay. Well, right now I'm just thinking of Olivia because I like that okay. name. Okay, so just name your doubt Olivia. Every time Olivia comes to visit, say, oh, that's Olivia. Hey, how you doing? And get on with your life. Don't give it the importance that you've given it. Thank you. And the, you're welcome. It's over here. It's the last question. As a person of color and as a woman, which qualifies me for many minorities in which this country. Which is what? Uh, which qualifies me for minorities in a lot of uh, places in this country. My, uh, being a person of color, being a woman, Hispanic, Asian, you name it, I have it. Um, Welcome to the club. Yeah. Um, I have these, uh, the practice has helped me uh, understand that people have different points of view of what, why violence exists uh, when we separate each other. Like, I'm this race, I am, you know, this is my culture, that's your culture, me, you. Um, but sometimes, um, like for instance, I, 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 on weekends I usually take these um, disadvantaged kids uh, from New York to museums and places where white kids, you know, wealthy kids go. And it breaks my heart to see um, how people treat them or look at them because they're different. They are, uh, they're poor, therefore they're fatter than wealthy white kids and they treat them differently and they have, uh, they have uh, impairments because they're having abuse and things like that. And I, I just feel this hatred sometimes towards people who look at them like that and just fast forward to what's going on in Ferguson. And uh, like, I am gonna celebrate Thanksgiving, but I, I told my daughter, we're gonna celebrate the, we're gonna rememorate the genocide of Native Americans in this country. Because that's how I view it. It's not a national holiday for me. It's not a It's not a national holiday for me. I am grateful for a lot of things that I have. Yeah. So what's your question? How can I control the anger? I try to, I try to uh, practice wise speech. But it's so hard sometimes to talk about issues like race and what injustice has been done and how people react and people are 
hateful towards each other without entering into that hatred speech. And I notice it, and I don't like it. And I try not to avoid it, but I don't want to be like that. I want to be compassionate. But it's very hard, especially with all the things that are going on. So we've on. got a theme tonight, right? Nobody wants to be what they are. <laughs> Nobody wants to experience what they're experiencing. Everybody wants to experience it. So we all want this kind of you know, beautiful, ethereal, angelic kind of music playing all the time. <laughs> just like these wonderful devas in this fabulous deva realm, and we never have hatred, and we never have, you know, the, our cousin, and we, you know, and, you know, and, and we want to get, you know, and we want to get something about, you know, our practice and compassion, and, you know, we hate our doubt, and, we, you know, we, so, so just notice that. Just notice that, with this dilemma that we have where we've been conditioned into pleasant. We've been conditioned into no pain. And yet, in so many ways, the pain of our life, it, you know, no mud, no lotus. If we don't have the mud, the lotus doesn't grow. And even after the lotus has grown out of the mud, it still needs the mud to keep nourishing it. And so what's beautiful about this practice that we've been doing together is that it asks us to not demonize anything, to not turn away from anything. And it doesn't mean that we're not discerning and that we don't understand hatred or that we or that we think it's perfectly okay to direct hatred at another. But when we understand hatred completely, that's when it dissolves from our hearts. And so it, we're not trying to make it go away. We're trying to really understand it. What's the fear behind it? What, what actually makes heart, hatred happen in my own heart. Because if I can understand it in my own heart, going back to the first question, then I can understand it in the heart of another. It doesn't invite violence, because I understand deeply that violence is, as Martin Luther King said, a descending spiral in which we just beget more violence. But, it, but we can't stop ourselves from doing that by force. That's violence too. We stop ourselves from doing it by true, deep understanding, by wisdom. And that's what this, that's what this practice is about. It's not about becoming some kind of, you know, deva person being, impossible being, that never has an evil thought or never has a bad idea or, or, you know, never not likes cousin Amy or whatever, but that we understand deeply when that flash of hatred goes across our own minds. We understand what that does to the body. We feel the acid that comes into the stomach from that hatred. We feel it. It's not theoretical. We feel it. We feel the... the the, the bile that happens. If we feel the hatred, we feel the hatred in our own hearts, 
Not, we're not looking at it and saying, that person shouldn't hate. We're feeling it in our own hearts and what that does to us. We're feeling the suffering of that. And the practice tells us not to turn away from it, not to wish it away, but through understanding, allowing the space for it to dissolve by all by itself. We don't have control over these things. We're, we're conditioned into survival. So, you know, even one-celled organisms have, were born attaching to each other. Right? So it's not our fault that we want to attach. It's not our fault that we want everybody to be nice, that we want everybody to fit our ideas of how they should be. Because in some ways we're going all the way back to this idea of we should survive. And we, we know when, when you know, there's hostility in the environment, it, we're in danger. We may not survive. So we do everything we can to get rid of it. But we know, we, you know, here we are in 2014 and we're still killing each other. We're still sending bombs over there and we're still saying it's their fault and not ours. We're still doing that. We've le- we haven't learned that that's not how it ends. But what we have learned, some of us, is that if we pay really deep attention to what all of these emotions are like in our own hearts, our own bodies, our own minds. They let go all by themselves. They self-liberate, as one of my teachers, Satya Rinpoche, says. They self-liberate. So the idea that, why do those people hate? Why are they so hateful? Begins to be answered when you look at your own hatred and not with not condemning it and not condemning yourself but understanding the effect it has in your own life then you can let it go because it there's nothing it, it, you begin to see the ephemeral nature of it as Lani was saying to Regina that it's it, that's it's impermanent it, it's it's not you it's something that's coming up floating through and going away unless we capture it and say, yep, that's me. When we do that, then we make it solid. Thank you. No, I, I, yeah, that's very helpful. I guess uh, to some extent I always thought, talk about accepting everything that arises, but, but I actually don't. never thought about it in that way. But yeah, yeah, if, yeah, we talk about it, but yeah. we don't do it. And that's the whole essence of practice, is how to do it. And just the simple movement from, um, of the mind to see when, when it falls away and we move it back. That's, the, that's building the musculature that allows us to do that. Just this very simple, oh, I can come back, I can come back. And I can come back to what is beautiful and pleasing and supportive and helpful. And I can come back to what is difficult and sorrowful and grieving. I can come back to all of that. Why? Because I really, really, really deeply need to understand. And when I understand, 
Compassion is not far away. Hmm. So let's just sit for a, a moment. So allow all of the words to disappear. Let them float through as if they're floating through a porous veil. And when we do that, we are left with our own being in this moment, sitting here together, being a part of the world. and allowing whatever is arising, hatred, doubt, questioning, anticipation, let it all come and go, which it will, without grasping any of it as me, as who I am. Seeing its very nature of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and selflessness. And allowing your heart to open to all of the pain of the world, including your own. and feeling the deep wish, if you do, for the end of that pain, the end of that suffering. And with a heart of goodwill and harmlessness, wishing for the well-being of the whole world, not omitting anyone, wishing that all beings everywhere be safe from harm, that those who are in war-torn countries be protected, that no one is subjected to violence. all beings be safe from harm. Wishing that all beings be happy and peaceful, allowed to live in peace with enough. Wishing that all beings be healthy, strong, those who are near and dear to us, those who are far away who may even be unknown to us. And that all beings live with ease. And if there is anyone that 
you feel would particularly be helped by our collective goodwill, please feel free to say their names, out loud or in your heart, so that we can include them. Marilyn, Anastasia, Amelia, And we embrace all of these beings that we've named in our hearts or out loud and send our deepest wishes of goodwill for their peace, their safety, their health, and their ease. May it be so. you so much for your attention and for your practice. Good night. Travel safely and have a really great day of gratitude on Thursday. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.